This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 19th. Today, questions about the president's interaction with a foreign leader, a state's rights battle over fuel emissions, and cannabis meets the world of fine dining. We first found out about the complaint late uh, last Friday evening when Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, put out a letter that he had written to the director of national intelligence, sort of the big chief spy agency. Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. And what he laid out in that letter was essentially this history that kind of begins in mid-August where there was an intelligence community official who filed a complaint. Now, he didn't say what the complaint was because he didn't know what the complaint was at the time and said, we're aware this person filed a complaint and that your office, the DNI, will not let us see it and that you've determined for the following reasons that we can't, and we demand to see it. No DNI, no Director of National Intelligence, has ever refused to turn over a whistleblower complaint. And according to the Director of National Intelligence, the reason he's not acting to provide it, even though the statute mandates that he do so, is because he is being instructed not to. Now, this involved a higher authority, someone above the DNI. Well, there are only a few people above the DNI. That was kind of like suddenly the chum in the water. And then by Saturday morning, I think, you know, like basically every national security reporter in Washington was chasing this thing, saying, what is this? Who's this whistleblower? Where are they? What are they about? Because there was this big question of if Adam Schiff is so concerned about finding out the contents of this complaint, then what is the complaint saying? Exactly. And if Adam Schiff can't find out and he's making this public, that suggests that he has hit a wall in his efforts to get the information And then you all broke news today of what the contents of that complaint said. Correct. What we reported today is that the allegation by this whistleblower involves a conversation that President Trump had with a foreign leader and a promise or a kind of commitment that the president made to that leader in that conversation. So we don't know who that foreign leader was or what that promise was that was made. That's right. So on its face, it almost sounds like, well, we don't know very much than we did yesterday. But actually, we know a lot more than we did yesterday. We know now that it involves the president himself in a conversation. So that tells us, I think, the allegation that it involves some kind of a promise The president, or really anyone who negotiates, doesn't make a promise unless they expect something in return. So it seems like there was some kind of talk of negotiation that occurred here enough to make this individual, who we believe is someone who has a lot of experience in the intelligence community, to say, wait a second, this is egregious or this is flagrant and possibly corrupt. I'm going to ring the alarm bell about it. So we don't know who the president was talking to in this conversation that an official flagged. But 
we usually do have records of who presidents are talking to when they're talking to foreign leaders or we hear about phone calls and the general nature of those phone calls. Do we have any of that here to help us understand what this conversation could have been about or who it could have been with? We have a bit. We have some records of leaders that the president talked to uh, during and around the period when the complaint was filed. President Trump spoke on July 31st with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. He met at the White House with the prime minister of Pakistan. But in this sort of, you know, you can take a five or six week period before this complaint and there's a variety of people that he's met with. Oh, and of course, in all this period, he's exchanging letters with Kim Jong-un. Now, that doesn't mean that's that, that it was, you know, within six or eight weeks. It could have been much earlier than that. But what's interesting about this White House is the president has a history of taking phone calls with leaders that he hasn't scheduled, of sort of doing calls that don't necessarily get logged in the books, taking meetings uh, with foreign officials without note takers in the room, demanding that they be held with no American aides present. This is really – I mean this is unprecedented. People – presidents don't do it this way. Generally speaking, the reason we have a lot of Americans in the room and we're making records and a note of this is because these meetings are not an opportunity for the president to engage in dealmaking with an individual. They're an opportunity for him to convey the positions of the United States and to try and get our policy message across. And we want a record of that, partly because we don't want the foreign official then going out and telling a version of the story that we're not refuting or telling a wrong version of the story. The Kremlin has done on this. There have been meetings that the president's had or phone calls, I should say, with Vladimir Putin that we only find out about from the Russian government. And does anybody think that they're telling the entire contents of the conversation and the full story? I don't think so. So while we have some picture of what the president does in his conversation with the foreign leaders, there's this history of him, frankly, obscuring a lot of that, which is one of the reasons this whistleblower complaint is so much more compelling because it involves these interactions that the president routinely tries to hide from people. So this person heard what the president said, was concerned about it, made a formal complaint. What has happened with that complaint? Is the inspector general actually investigating it? Well, the inspector general did look at the complaint and found it credible. And generally what that means in an investigation is that there's someone else who can substantiate this or there's some other way to substantiate it. So it's not just the person saying this and you have to take their word for it. And also that it met a legal threshold spelled out in something called the Intelligence Community Whistleblowers Protection Act, which basically it met the criteria for something that the inspector general looks at and says this is what's called an urgent matter. So in other words, you got to take this seriously. Under the law, what's supposed to happen then is that the IG tells the DNI, the director of national intelligence, about this. And then he has a week to give the file basically to the oversight committee so that they're aware of it. But that didn't happen here. And so what is Congress doing now to try to figure out more about what's in this complaint and to be able to take action on it? So Congress today heard from the intelligence community inspector general. He testified behind closed doors. Uh, we understand and he didn't really tell them anything new. I think that the, this is still – the DNI's office is still sticking to the line that they were advised by the Department of Justice, which is that there are privileged communications involved here. And so this cannot be transmitted to Congress. And importantly also, what they're saying is – this isn't really in our lane. <laughs> We're the director of national intelligence or the intelligence community inspector general. We don't really have oversight of the president. So, but then who does? Well, that's a great question. This has kind of become one of the recurring questions of the Trump administration. You could argue that the Justice Department is in the position to decide what the president or the White House 
needs to do in a case like this, and here they did. Presumably the White House counsel would have a view on that as well. That's the lawyer for the White House, for the Office of the Presidency. Tellingly, according to Adam Schiff, the White House and the DNI will not tell them whether the White House was consulted. That's interesting. Um, so it does raise this question of who ultimately is accountable. Well, under the Constitution, that would be the Congress. <laughs> the Congress is a co-equal branch of government that gets to check the executive, but in this case, they can't find out what the complaint is. So if the law says that in this case, the inspector general is supposed to give this information to the director of national intelligence who is supposed to inform Congress of what's going on, why is it that the Department of Justice is stepping in? Is that normal? So it is not normal for the inspector general to get the Justice Department involved when there's a complaint. In this case, that process took this detour where officials in the director of national intelligence office consulted with the Justice Department. We think probably because of something that they saw in the complaint. Uh, I think we can assume that given that the allegation involved the president having a conversation with a foreign leader, they looked at this and said, wait a minute, the president is you know, not really within our purview. And there's indications. But they were a little bit worried that they were out of their depth. Exactly. So they go to the Department yeah. of Justice to ask, like, what are we supposed to do Precisely. Here? And there are indications in the letter that don't explicitly say the president, but in letters from the DNI to the Congress that clearly indicate we're dealing with an individual that's not within our jurisdiction. Well, okay, it's kind of pointing at the president, isn't it? Um, and they go to the Justice Department, and the Justice Department says there are issues in involving privileged communications. Privileged communications, again, pretty clearly points to the president. But the point here is, is that the law does not anticipate this kind of carve-out or this detour where the DNI gets to go consult with the Justice Department, which is, by the way, led by a political appointee of the president, the attorney general, and ask them, hey, what are we supposed to do here? That's Adam Schiff's position. As the law is very clear. You've got to give this to us. But that's the impasse that we're at now. So, do they have any tools at their disposal to try to figure out what it is, to be able to demand more information? Yeah, they do, and they used it this week. The committee issued a subpoena to the acting director of national intelligence, a guy named Joe McGuire, compelling his testimony. The DNI's officer wrote back and said, whoa, hold on a second. Let's not jump the gun here, and we haven't had enough time to try and work this out, essentially. And there may be a way that they could meet and give the Congress some information, or maybe they could say, well, here's the meat of the complaint, but we're going to, like, you know, X out the communications itself that the president... There's a way you could imagine them telling them something without maybe not telling them everything. Joe McGuire is now slated to testify next Thursday in open session, which is very interesting. We'll see if that actually comes to pass. Testimony has a way of kind of not materializing these days. But that's sort of where we are right now, is they're trying to work this out behind the scenes. And people like reporters here at The Post and elsewhere are all frantically trying to figure out what in the world this whole allegation is about. Shane Harris covers national security for The Washington Post. This week, the White House announced that it's revoking California's ability to set its own auto emission standards. What they're really doing is upending a system in which California for decades has driven environmental advancements in this area. Essentially, the reason we have a catalytic converter today in our cars is because California asked for it first. 
Juliet Alprin is a senior national correspondent for The Post. She covers environmental and energy policy. You're having a huge battle that's not just about what's the mileage of a car or a light truck a few years from now, but to what extent will California be a player demanding more of industry and having them respond? So for decades, California has been able to set its own emission standards for cars that are completely separate from federal emission standards. Why is that? Well, so yes, you have to go back to the 1960s. And really, the issue is some people might, you know, be familiar with the images of Los Angeles and smog and things like that. Essentially, California had a big air pollution problem in the 50s and 60s and had been starting to address it. And so when the federal government came in and started crafting the Clean Air Act, California said, hold up a minute. We're already grappling with this problem, and it's fantastic that you people are trying to pass a law, but we want to make sure that if we want to go further and faster, that's possible. And so the agreement was that California could ask permission to adopt more stringent standards when it came to not just vehicles, but, you know, farming operations and a slew of other potential air pollution problems. But this week, President Trump announced something that could potentially change that. Absolutely. So this week, President Trump and his deputies took action to revoke this longstanding waiver that California has to set tailpipe emission standards for cars and light trucks. And why are they doing this? Well, there are a couple of reasons for why they're doing it. One is that the administration is currently in the midst of rolling back Obama-era mileage standards for these vehicles. And so part of it is the administration is seeking to weaken the mileage standards, and it creates a schism if California is imposing stricter rules. That's really the immediate reason. More broadly, the administration is invested in ensuring that essentially states can't be the drivers of stricter environmental regulations, particularly in the area of climate. That they think that it gives a state too much power to be able to say, while these cars can, while these cars meet federal standards, if you want to drive your car in our state, you have to meet a higher standard. Yes. And in fact, anyone who's being honest on the left or the right would agree that California has tremendous leverage because not only is it a significant portion of the U.S. auto market, but there are 13 states and the District of Columbia who have vowed to adopt those standards. As a result, the auto industry really ends up being in a bind. If California wants to move ahead with stricter standards, they're faced with the prospect of producing different vehicles for different parts of the country. And that is something that they really don't want to do. But President Trump's tweet also said that this was about consumers being able to have more cheaper cars for people who want to be buying cars in the future and also to have more U.S. jobs for car manufacturing. This is an argument that the administration has been making, and partially it depends on how you do the math. If you're looking at what the sticker price of a car is when you walk into the showroom, it is true that if you're demanding higher mileage standards, initially that car is going to be a little more expensive. Over the lifetime of the car, there's no question that consumers save money because they're spending less on gas. And so that is something that, again, conservatives and Republican analysts who have looked at this largely agree with. But the administration is making the argument that you'll save money. In the jobs argument that 
President Trump is making is not something that I've seen supported by any kind of independent academic study. And it's a little unclear. It's not even something that I believe the administration has argued in the past. So what is the automotive industry saying about this? Because I can imagine on the one hand, it's probably a lot easier for them for the federal government to be saying, hey, we don't want you to have to meet a higher standard to put all the money into creating cars that are more fuel efficient. But on the other hand, a lot of these car manufacturers had just made a deal with the state of California saying that they were going to create these more fuel efficient cars. The auto industry is in a bind and they're split on this. It's worth noting that it was, in fact, the automakers that first asked Trump to pursue this weakening of mileage standards. And they did that within a week of him taking office. So they've sparked this entire battle that we're in right now. However, they were under the assumption that California and the federal government would be able to strike a deal like they did under the Obama administration, and they would meet somewhere in the middle. They wouldn't demand the same improvements in efficiency, but at the same time, they wouldn't give up on it altogether. Once it became clear that California and the Trump administration were at loggerheads, the auto industry really pursued a split strategy where four automakers struck a deal with California to largely adhere to stricter targets, and the rest of them have remained on the sidelines. And right now, they're being pretty quiet about what they want to do going forward for the ones who have not, who have not struck this deal. And how is the state of California reacting to this? California is fired up and ready to go to court. 100 waivers have been approved over and over and over again. Courts have upheld our rights of these waivers. So I'm confident we'll prevail eventually. It will take years and years and years, more uncertainty, more anxiety, but California will prevail. They had a press conference yesterday where they had the governor saying that they were eager to challenge the administration on court and that they were determined to assert their authority to regulate air emissions from cars. But to some extent, we do have a record that Congress has repeatedly affirmed the right of California to have its own authority over air pollution emissions. So, you know, there's kind of arguments that both sides can marshal and we'll really have to see what happens in court. And where does that leave car manufacturers? Because if you're an automaker, you can't have confusion about what the regulations are going to be for your car that you're trying to design that's going to come out in just a few years. And so how are they going to navigate this? That's an excellent question. And I would love to get a bunch of car makers in a room off the record to talk to them about this. They tend to be pretty careful about it. But my sense is from the discussions I've had with the auto industry that to some extent, they still need to produce more efficient cars for a couple of reasons. One is that they plan their vehicles on a four to five year planning cycle. So, you know, we're debating about what are going to be the federal standards for next year. And in fact, they're thinking several years down the line at this point. They also face the prospect that, of course, there could be a different party in control of the White House come 2021. And so they are trying to balance all of these competing issues and at the same time, you know, try to live by whatever rules the Trump administration sets forth in the coming months. So even if this move by the White House is something that was initially requested by auto manufacturers, the fact that it's now happened is just making things more confusing for them. Oh, yes. I think that any auto manufacturer, if they're being frank, would would certainly say that if they knew it would lead down to this path, they would have at least thought twice before asking for this rollback. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Juliet Alprin is a senior national correspondent for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. It's going to have this kind of rustic look. It'll have lots of indoor plants. It'll have a really nice terrace. The menu will be sort of inspired by Southern American food and Caribbean food, too. It's going to look like a neighborhood place, but with weed. I'm Maura Judkis. I'm a reporter for the food section. Maura recently visited a place called Lowell Farms. It's a new cannabis restaurant in Los Angeles. So my name is Andrea Drummer. I am a cannabis chef. Um, right now I'm partnered with Lowell, and we are opening one of the first on-site consumption cannabis restaurants in the country. So the Lowell Farms Cafe is going to be one of the first sort of not fine dining, but like upscale enough restaurant that will serve cannabis on the menu. There are a couple of other places that have tried to have cannabis consumption lounges, and they're usually these kind of like grim looking rooms attached to dispensaries in Colorado or California. No one has really been able to accomplish like a neighborhood restaurant, a kind of more welcoming place where people can make it truly a social experience. The restaurant opens this month. But before that could happen, the owners had to jump through all kinds of legal hoops because of conflicting state and local laws around recreational cannabis consumption. So one of the biggest obstacles here is that West Hollywood passed an ordinance that would allow these cannabis cafes and lounges to operate. But there is no such license at the state level. There's only a dispensary license. So on the state level, these restaurants are going to be operated as dispensaries, which gives them certain permissions on what they can sell. But because of the local laws, they'll actually be subject to more restrictions. For example, restaurants in the city can usually open till 2 a.m., but because they're actually a dispensary, they can only operate till 10 p.m. Another example is that they can't actually infuse the food. The experience of ingesting cannabis is very different from smoking it, of course, and I hope to kind of bring that experience to the general public. She's not able to infuse food because all cannabis edibles have to be tested at the state level. When you're operating a restaurant, it's just not feasible for you to send everything to a lab. And so because of that, she won't be able to infuse her own food on the premise. And generally, opening up a restaurant like this is really hard. Operators can't use regular banks. They can't build within 600 feet of a school. They need extra security and ventilation. 
They had to scuttle their plans for a roof deck because you can't actually have a business where cannabis consumption is visible from the street. It has to be behind walls. And at the state level, cannabis businesses can't actually sell food. So Lowell Cafe will operate as two separate businesses under one roof, a restaurant and a dispensary. That means that there will be three spaces within the building, one for smoking only, one only for eating, and one for smoking and eating. People who sit there will get their cannabis delivered to the table from the other side of the building. And people who order food and cannabis will receive two different checks. If you could merge these two concepts of food and cannabis and that is contributing to normalizing the conversation and removing the stigma of cannabis. That makes it worth it for me. And I'm getting people to talk about it and think about it in a different way, even if you're not a consumer. Other states where cannabis is recreationally legal will definitely be watching this to see how it works, to see how it works out and how people react to it. From, I think, a public health standpoint and also from a tourism standpoint and how much money it will bring in. Colorado has already passed a bill looking at these cannabis lounges and restaurants, and I think other states are exploring it as well. And so it is something that we might begin to see soon in other states where cannabis is legal. Maura Judkiss writes about food and culture for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On Friday's episode of Post Reports, the story of the 47 dogs who survived Michael Vick's dogfighting ring. For some of these rescue organizations, they thought, okay, we've got about, what, 50 dogs? Man, if we could save 10, if we could save five, like, that would be awesome. I, I don't know if anyone was quite expecting that at the end of these evaluations, they would say, okay, 47 of the 48, like, time to go home. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.